question. Because <laughs> you had uh, James up here just made a mess of the thing. So, <laughs> James, you'll get a bill in the mail here pretty soon for the new microphone we'll have to get. So, okay, here we are. Whoa, we are really here, aren't we? Everybody awake now? Okay, before we get started, I'd like you to see the story that was on TV. Who, who saw it already last week? Okay, so several of you have seen it, but some of you haven't, so we're going to take a look at that now. Hopefully. Okay, hang on a second. Here we go. A man dedicated to explaining Islam to Christians says the view of the religion is skewed right now. He spoke to a Tulsa church today encouraging more mission work. The Tulsa News on 6 reporter Amy Slanchik, he also wants people to be more accepting of others of different faiths. When you walk into Tulsa Christian Fellowship, it's easy to spot reminders of the church's missionary work. Flags hanging from the ceiling represent each country church members have been to or are in right now. And a map on the wall points to places around the world with current mission trips. That day when I'm going to meet the Lord Jesus face to face. Greg Livingstone is an ordained minister with the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in town for the Tulsa Christian Fellowship's annual mission conference. Church leaders say it's meant to keep the vision for their missionaries alive. Livingstone told church members today he's encouraged by the number of missionaries they go on. And particularly people who are going to, to places that uh, not very many people go to. Some are in predominantly Muslim countries like Mauritania. Livingstone has spent his life traveling all over the world introducing Christianity to Muslims and says some Americans view them incorrectly. The main thing I'd like people to understand is that Muslims are people. He says the best way to do that is to start conversations. If some Muslims are in your neighborhood or in your business, you know, reach out to them, uh, welcome them. Livingstone encourages people to go beyond what makes headlines and to get to know people who practice Islam, whether they're on the other side of the world or right here in Tulsa. Bombings and killings and uh, is, is what people absorb, and they're not seeing the 90% of, of normal life of Muslims just trying to get through life like the rest of us. In Tulsa, Amy Slanchik, News on 6. Okay, so there you go. If you haven't seen it now, you've seen it. So this morning you'll notice that, that there are no TV cameras here to cover anything. I have a very unenviable task this morning. I have the privilege, or maybe challenge is a little bit better word, of following two outstanding missions conference speakers. Both of them have written books. Well, I've read a lot of books. Both of them had doctorates. I've been to the doctor. Both of them have lived and worked overseas for decades serving the Lord. Well, I've served the Lord too, but the only foreign country I've ever been to is Canada. Does it help that I've been there a lot of times? How can I possibly follow up what we've experienced, what we've learned, what we've heard here in these past two weeks? So after a lot of prayer and study, and that's not a joke, I decided that the best way this morning to follow our missions conference is by rehearsing a portion of of what our foundation for missions is. Indeed, the foundation for our faith, for wisdom, for knowledge. We can't fulfill God's call 
on this church unless we have a firm foundation. And that means not just all of us together as a fellowship, it does mean that, but each of us as individuals. We cannot be faithful to God's call unless we launch our missionaries out into the distant fields of harvest with a firm foundation in ourselves. And that means we have to go back to the beginning. When you start anything, where do you usually start? At the beginning, right? If you were building a simple tower with blocks, for example, and you said, hey, just for fun, just to be different, let's start at the top. Well, what would happen? Your top would end up at the bottom pretty quickly, wouldn't it? If you were starting a company, think about this. And instead of developing a product or service to sell, you decided, I'm going to hire salespeople first to go out there and begin selling. What do you think would happen? Well, what would happen is your potential customers would laugh at you because when they asked you what you're selling, you'd have to tell them, I don't know, we haven't decided yet. Now think about that. These things are very simple observations. They seem even a little bit silly. Of course you start at the beginning. You start at the beginning with everything, don't you? After all, where else would you start? Apparently, God doesn't take for granted that we will always be compelled to start at the beginning because he made a clear point to instruct us in his word about the beginning of the knowledge and the wisdom we need, not only to know him and follow him, but simply to operate effectively in the world that he created. We see in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. A related passage of Scripture is Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Very simple, very basic, right? Very straightforward. You might even say very foundational to our faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yet it's clear from what's written here and in other passages that address this theme of the fear of the Lord that there must be those who don't put first things first. There must be those who don't start at the beginning. Why else would we need these admonitions? There are those who skip that all-important first step, kind of like trying to build that tower with the top block first. Doesn't make sense before you put anything else underneath it. And God calls these people who don't put first things first, who try to build the tower with the top block first, he calls them in a roundabout way in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, fearless fools. Fools apparently have no fear. Or at the very least, they don't fear what they should fear. And just as there is good fear, such as the fear of the Lord that we're going to spend some time seeing spoken of throughout Scripture this morning, there is bad fear too. How about this? Did you know that there's a condition called palatophobia? And you know what that is? It's fear of baldness and bald people. There's uh, another condition called porphyrophobia. That's the fear of the color purple. How about thalassophobia? The fear of being seated. There's odontophobia. That's the fear of teeth. There's graphophobia, the fear of writing in public. And then there's the all-encompassing one, phobophobia, the fear of being afraid. 
And here's my all-time forever favorite fear. And this is, I don't know if this is a real thing or not, but it's out there on the internet. That doesn't mean it's a real thing, does it? How about this one? It's called anatidaphobia. It's the fear that somehow, somewhere, a duck is watching you. <laughs> I love that one. I don't know, boy, but, but there, he's there. And if you're, Gordon, have you ever seen one of those on your flight from Russia, sitting out there on the wing looking at you in the plane? Okay, I haven't either. This morning we're going to take a closer look at what Scripture tells us is a good and absolutely appropriate fear. We're talking, of course, about the fear of God. The fear that's the beginning of knowledge. The fear that's the beginning of wisdom. Now, this is a hard topic for all of us for several reasons. Not the least of which is that our first response when we hear about this idea of the fear of God is often greatly influenced by our understanding of what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. Or 1 John 4.18, where John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Our natural human understanding of things says that, well, if God is love, how and why should we fear him? Not only does God love us, but the word says he is love. So at first glance, we seem to have a contradiction in Scripture here. Well, as so often happens, the contradiction is evident only in our initial and our very finite understanding of these things, and it's clearly not a contradiction, especially when you study what Chuck Farah used to like to remind us of, and that's from Acts chapter 20, verse 27, the whole counsel of God. We must understand Scripture as interpreted by the whole of Scripture. Just as Scripture is full of descriptions of the love of God, Scripture is also full of admonitions, of commands, of affirmations of the rightness of the fear of God. And translating the word fear as simple respect is inadequate. The fear of God is more than just what we would think of as respect, although that's clearly a part of it. It's important we do wrestle with this because of the many references in Scripture written in positive ways about the fear of God. So that's what we're going to try to do here this morning. We're going to try to get a handle on the fear of God. And let's begin by thinking of it this way. If you are face-to-face -face with a lion, you fear it. You don't just respect it, you're afraid. You wouldn't think of putting your hand near that lion's mouth. If you're not afraid, you're as good as dead or mauled. And what's more, you're a fearless fool if you're not afraid. If you're at a zoo with a deep moat and maybe a high fence between you and the lion, well, you don't have the same kind of fear at that point, but you're still not going to climb the fence to get any closer and if you do, you're a fool. You're a fearless fool, but you're a fool nonetheless. Now think about this. If you're driving down the highway and you see a police car, you automatically check your speed, don't you? You look down at your speedometer. You don't want to get a ticket for exceeding the speed limit. Why? Because you fear the consequences of getting caught speeding. Speeding tickets are expensive. If you're not speeding, you don't have the same kind of fear. 
But that doesn't mean, even though you don't have the same kind of fear, you're not going to speed up and then do over the limit and pass all the other people who are slowing down. If you did, you'd be a fool, a fearless fool, unafraid of the consequences. Now, these are inadequate pictures, but they begin to give us a glimpse of how we are admonished in Scripture to fear God. They begin to capture what it means. If we're in Christ, we needn't fear God in the same way as someone who hasn't trusted in the blood of Jesus for forgiveness of sins should fear him. Of course, those who don't fear God at all are the ones who most likely probably should fear him the most. However, though our fear is not the same as the unbeliever should have, there is still a healthy biblical fear of God that's appropriate and right even for believers. We see people who fear God or who are described as those who walk in the fear of the Lord presented in a very positive manner throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's often a description for those who are wholehearted servants of God. It says they feared the Lord. For example, we'll just give a couple examples here this morning. Dave, could you bring me a cup of water, please? I forgot to bring up here. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, we read this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then we read in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion, how? In the fear of God. So we see in this verse that walking in the fear of the Lord is part of our sanctification. Did you think of that? Being made more and more like Christ, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So let's take a closer look <clears throat> at the two passages of Scripture from Proverbs that we read just a little earlier to see if we can get a little bit more of a grip on what this means to fear God and why the fear of God is actually a good thing, an important, protective, even formative thing in our lives, even a joyful recognition of who God is. We read earlier in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Uh, commentator Matthew Henry writes about this verse. He says, we are not qualified to profit by the instructions that are given us unless our minds are possessed with a holy reverence for God and every thought within us is brought into obedience to him. Erdman's Bible handbook notes this, the fear of the Lord is an important phrase, recurring phrase in Proverbs. It describes a wholesome awe and respect for God that expresses itself in obedience, reliance on God, and deliberate avoidance of evil. Now the word for beginning in Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 means the first. It means uh, the first in place, time, order, or rank, specifically like a first fruit. It's the first part. In other words, it's the foundation on which everything else is built. This verse tells us that without the healthy fear of God in place, any instruction does us no good. We can talk till we're blue in the face, and without the fear of God as a foundation, we're not going to learn anything. We're not going to get anything unless we first fear God. In the passage of Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the word 
for beginning there is just a little bit different with a little bit different nuance to it. In Proverbs 9.10, according to uh, one commentator, the Hebrew word for beginning here differs from the word for beginning in chapter 1, verse 7 that we just looked at. In 9.10, it means prerequisite. In college coursework, you have a prerequisite in some courses. Not all of them, but some of them. In other words, if you haven't taken Communications 101, they won't let you take Communications 201. Now, in my degree work, I had to take Intro to TV before I could take Advanced TV or I could take TV Directing. For those in high school, you don't take Trigonometry, you don't take Calculus unless you've already passed Algebra and Geometry. There's no use in teaching a doctor how to perform surgery unless he has a full understanding of anatomy. That's a prerequisite. Otherwise, that doctor who became a surgeon might cut on the wrong body part. And he might say one of the things you never want to hear a surgeon say in an operating room. Oops. Or, what's this thingy? Or worse yet, is this supposed to be leftover? You don't want doctors to say those things, right? They have a prerequisite. You have to know anatomy. The fear of the Lord is not only the foundation and the first thing in any kind of knowledge that we may gain, but it's a prerequisite to any kind of wisdom that we might hope to attain. The idea is that without the fear of the Lord as a foundation, without the fear of the Lord as a prerequisite, knowledge and wisdom are unattainable. Think about that. We can't possess real knowledge or real wisdom without the fear of God. Now we might know facts. We might even know a lot of them. But knowledge and wisdom are more than just being what we might call smart. It's more than just an accumulation of facts or information. A biblical understanding of knowledge involves the ability to view all these things that we know with the right perspective and to use it to the proper end. A common understanding of wisdom is good judgment or the ability to develop the best course of action in response to a given situation. However, in the word, Wisdom also always has a very strong ethical content. Jerry Bridges writes this. He says, wisdom in Proverbs is more concerned with righteous living than with shrewd judgment. The Bible speaks often about human knowledge. According to the word, knowledge of God is the greatest knowledge. Of all the things we can know, the Bible says, knowing God is the greatest thing we can know. After all, Proverbs 9.10 also says that the knowledge of the Holy One, that's God, is understanding. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This knowledge of God is not simply theoretical or factual knowledge. It includes experiencing the reality of God in our lives. And as a result of that, living our lives in a way that shows reverence and awe for the power and the majesty of the great God we serve, seeing the greatness of God in his creation, beginning to glimpse the true holiness of God, witnessing his wisdom in running the universe, recognizing his involvement in the tiniest details of our lives, experiencing his awesome, amazing love for us, and falling on our knees in acknowledgement of his power and his authority. Now, another way to say these things or to summarize these thoughts might be this. 
The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Of course, as is so often the case, the scriptures give us both the positive and the negative of this theme. That is, on the one hand, here's the good that comes from fearing God, which we've been looking at. And then, on the other hand, here's the reality, the consequences of not fearing him. The second part, if you remember, of Proverbs 1-7 that we read a few minutes ago notes that fools despise wisdom and discipline or wisdom and instruction. The clear implication is that those who do not fear God are fools. Several uncomplimentary words appear in the Bible describing fools. About 360 times, unwise and ungodly people are described as fools or their behavior is described as folly or foolish. This is especially true in what are known as the wisdom books of the Old Testament. That would include the book of Proverbs from which we read this morning. So it's very clear that foolishness is the opposite of wisdom, just as a fool is the opposite of a wise person. If we want to be godly, we must choose wisdom. And true wisdom belongs only to those who walk in the fear of the Lord. As we saw earlier, the fear of the Lord is rooted in a relationship of reverence and awe toward God. Reverence and awe of who God is, of what he does, of what he's capable of. It's the kind of relationship that actually strengthens us. And inevitably, as we fear God, it leads to knowledge and wisdom. The opposite of that is the fool. And the fool is the one who despises wisdom, who despises instruction or discipline. Now, how do you despise wisdom? Well, it's basically a willful, even obstinate refusal to listen to the wisdom of others or to the word of God. Now, there are three Hebrew words that are translated as fool in the book of Proverbs. One kind of fool is characterized by a dull and closed mind. This kind of fool is thick-headed and stubborn. This word for fool occurs more frequently in Proverbs than the other two words. And this kind of fool, by his laziness and short-sightedness, rejects information from others. Talk to the hand. That's what he says. Another word for fool is used only three times in Proverbs, and it refers to the one who lacks spiritual perception. And a third kind of fool is arrogant and flippant as well as mentally dull. It's kind of a composite of the others with the added characteristic of arrogance. There you go. I'm going to add arrogance to be all these other characteristics of a fool. He's hard-headed. He won't listen to wisdom. Anybody can think of anybody you know like that? I'll bet you most of us can. Unfortunately, this is the kind of fool described in Proverbs 1.7. Those who in their arrogant, hard-headed ways never seem to learn. They never learn. And they choose to reject God and to, as a result, reject wisdom. They choose not to fear God. We read in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29, about these kind of people. They hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. That's a pretty sobering assessment, I think. So two kinds of people are contrasted 
in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. First, there are those who humbly fear God, and as a result, what do they do? They acquire true knowledge, and they acquire true wisdom. Then there are those arrogant fools who, by their refusal to fear God, demonstrate that they have a great contempt for wisdom and discipline. And that's what the word despise here means, to hold in contempt, to belittle, to ridicule even. Can you imagine ridiculing God? Only a fool would ridicule wisdom and understanding from God. Several years ago, I read a great book on fearing God by Jerry Bridges, who passed away just this past year. It's called The Joy of Fearing God. Isn't that a great title? Something that, again, two things we don't usually put together, joy and fearing. He notes what we recognized a little earlier when talking about this theme, that it seems to be kind of an oxymoron, mutually exclusive things, that the words joy and fearing God seem to be direct opposites. So they're mutually exclusive, kind of like jumbo shrimp, right? But he goes on to explain from the scriptures in book-length form why we should not only fear God, but find joy in doing so. He writes that a a profound sense of awe toward God is undoubtedly the dominant element in the attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of God. He adds that a popular definition of the fear of God is reverential awe. And he's concluded that he thinks that's actually a pretty good definition. However, he also notes, as we've been looking at here, that just as the fear of God has been sort of dumbed down to mean simple respect, which as we've already noted isn't enough, the word awe, even reverential awe, is not properly understood in our culture today. The true meaning of awe is an emotion in which dread, veneration, and wonder are variously mingled. Now, Jim Garrett has noted several times, you may have heard him say this, he thinks we misuse the word awesome. Everybody says this is awesome and that is awesome, right? And that the only truly awesome being in existence is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God whom we serve. John Murray wrote, it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. The scripture throughout prescribes the necessity of this fear of God under all the circumstances in which our sinful situation makes us liable to God's righteous judgment. So the Bible often makes a clear connection between a lack of the fear of God on the one hand and then sinful conduct. Paul wrote of sinful man in Romans chapter 3, Verse 18, he wrote, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, can you think of a better description of what we see happening in our culture today? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Can you think of a better description? Our society is neither in awe of God or afraid of his judgments. But what about us? It's easy to look out there and see all those bad people out there. But what about us? What about each of us as individuals? And that's assuming that most of us here, if not all of us, are born-again believers, followers of Christ. And if you're not, then this morning I want to tell you there's a very good reason for you to fear God. But what about Christians? When God reveals himself in Scripture, in experience, it points to the vast distinction between us lowly little creatures 
and the God we serve. There is a mystery in divine holiness. When we get a glimpse of God's holiness, we can be overwhelmed with a sense of awe and reverence or fear. The Bible's full of examples of this. For example, when Isaiah caught a glimpse of God in his holiness and glory, he didn't jump up and down and say, Yay, God! He didn't do that at all, did he? You remember this in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5? What did he say? He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's how Isaiah reacted to getting a glimpse of God. Seeing God in any fashion in Scripture. People, even godly people, Isaiah was a godly man, consistently respond by falling down in fear or kneeling in reverence or worship or confessing sin or seeking God's will. Our God is an awe-producing God because of his majesty, because of his power, because of his works, because of his transcendence and his holiness. Now, we might be inclined to de-emphasize the fear of God in the New Testament, as we observed earlier, by placing the love of God somehow above the fear of God. The Bible doesn't see that same tension, but we sometimes do. Yes, there is an emphasis in the New Testament on the love of God, and rightly so, because in Jesus, God revealed his love. He revealed his mercy. He revealed his grace in human form that we could relate to, that we could understand. Yet Paul warns us, nevertheless, Paul warns us in Romans 11.22 to consider both the kindness and the severity of God. We have to put those two things together. In an attitude of reverence for God, which should produce obedience, sanctification or holiness can be perfected. That is, it can be completed or matured over a lifetime. This is a maturing, growing holiness an increased Christ-likeness. Paul wrote this to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So Paul told the Philippians to work out, to put into practice in their daily living what God had already begun to work in them by his Holy Spirit. They were not told to work for their salvation, but to work out the salvation that God had already given them in Christ. In Hebrews, we read this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now the King James Version of that verse says this, so we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why godly fear? Why godly fear? Well, if you don't know, you can read the next verse. Verse 29 gives us the answer. For our God is a consuming fire. Anybody afraid of a consuming fire? If you don't, you are a fearless fool. So yes, the fear of God 
isn't just for those who don't know Christ. We believers are to fear God. For us, what does it mean? It means reverence. It means admiration. It means awe in the proper understanding of that word. A sober assessment in recognition of his infinite worth. Admiration of all of his glorious attributes. Amazement at his infinite love for us. It's that indefinable mixture of reverence and fear and pleasure and joy and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. A brother from one of the churches that attends the conclave, Clay Sterrett, some of you know Clay and have read some of his books, he wrote this, he said, if we met the Lord as he really is, I doubt any of us would be yawning or casually folding our arms. We would probably be on our faces before him. And why? Because the word tells us, and we just read it in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Though he's a God of love, and he is, and we can rejoice in that, he's also a fearsome God. And the fact that he's also a God of love in the midst of this makes me fear him all the more. And how about this in closing for us as a church? You know, we just heard all these wonderful admonitions at our missions conference, to, to stay the course. The task isn't finished. We're not done yet. God's not done with us yet. We heard all these great things. And so how are we to move forward? I found this verse in my studies as, we were, uh, as I was preparing this message. And it's from Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Did you ever make that connection between growth and fear? How about that for a good church sign? Come in and learn to fear God. Come join us and learn to fear God. It says the church grew in numbers as they walked in the fear of the Lord. Here we learn that there's a very clear connection between a strengthened church encouraged by the Holy Spirit, living in or walking in the fear of the Lord, and growing in numbers. Now, haven't we been praying for that? Haven't we been praying for that? We're doing this evangelism course this weekend. We have a lot of you signed up for that. It's wonderful. We just marked our missions conference where we send laborers into the harvest. Haven't we been praying for that? Could it be that as we are faithful more and more, to live in, to walk in the fear of the Lord in our lives individually and in our corporate lives as a fellowship. We'll see more and more come to Christ here and around the world. Is it just possible, folks? Huh? Could it be that our walking in the fear of the Lord is foundational? It's foundational to the mission's call of God on this church. It was for the early church. It was for the early church. That's what we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. The church grew in numbers, walking in the fear of the Lord. And all walking means is living their lives in the fear of the Lord. So may that be true of us at TCF as we walk in the fear of the Lord. Amen? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for these wonderful pictures of what it means to fear the Lord. Father, you are truly an awesome God. 
Help us to remember to use that word in the sense in which it truly means in Scripture, Father, that you are an awesome God. You are holy. And even to think of you as Isaiah thought of you, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. But Father God, at the same time, we're so well aware of your great love for us and the fact that you redeemed us from the curse of the law. You redeemed us from sin. You are truly a fearsome God, and you inspire awe in us as we read your word, as we encounter you in our lives, Father God. Help us, Father, to learn more and more each day what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. And help us, Father, as we do that, to see your hand at work in our midst, Father, and to touch our hearts, to touch our lives. And Heavenly Father, we pray that we would see, as the early church did, that we would grow in numbers as we walk in the fear of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.